Hi, I'm Dr. Fred Silva of Arcana Laboratories, coming to you from Little Rock, Arkansas, with another installment of Throwback Thursday. Diagnostic Dilemmas Unresolved Etiologies When the Clinical Acumen Has to Take Place in Resolving the Ambiguities The first we'll deal with is acute interstitial nephritis. The question is which one of the multiple drugs that the patient is on is causing the interstitial nephritis. We used to try to phenotype the inflammation when we saw a renal biopsy where the interstitial inflammation was way out of proportion to the glomerular and or the vascular changes, there may also be tubulitis. In the past, many investigators studied the immunophenotyping of the renal interstitial infiltrate in hopes of determining the etiology, the pathogenesis, or treatment. We don't routinely do that now, so it obviously didn't work. That is, the sensitivity, specificity, wasn't all that great. When we indicate to the clinician that their patient may, likely, has a drug toxicity, hypersensitivity, allergy, the clinician will often indicate that the patient is on a great many drugs, and with some frustration will ask you, so which drug is it? So pathologists have put the monkey on the back of the clinician, since we can't usually be specific although if the patient is on a drug known to be associated with interstitial inflammation, nephrotoxicity, hypersensitivity, that may be a clue. A few drugs have characteristic changes, but that is not very common. With various search engines, such as PubMed, my favorite, with millions and millions of abstracted papers, you can find just about anything associated with anything including drugs. That is, is it true-true related, true-true unrelated, which drug is it? Of course, nowadays, PPIs, NSAIDs, and antibiotics, as well as chemotherapeutic agents, are not uncommon causes of interstitial nephritis. Number two, the thrombotic microangiopathies. Do they really all look alike, despite differing etiologies? Can't you be a bit more specific, the clinician asks. We are all taught that usually, if not always, that TMAs can have numerous etiologies, all of which show morphologic overlap. That is, the morphologies of a TMA are indistinguishable from each other in terms of etiology. They all look alike. Some nephropathologists over the years have tried to determine the etiology of a TMA in an individual patient from the renal biopsy, morphology alone, but that is often difficult to impossible. There are algorithms to follow in TMA, such as HUS, atypical HUS, TTP, and of course, if a patient is post-transplant or pregnant or post-pregnant or on a drug, then that may provide a clue as to the nature of that patient's TMA. We just need a better way to determine the etiology of a TMA by the morphology than we presently have. Also, is that the pigeonhole placeholder that we want to put it, a diagnosis of TMA? What about a posseimmune MPGN pattern that has some changes reminiscent of a TMA? 
So determining the exact etiology of the TMA remains a challenge by morphology alone for all pathologists. Number three, focal and segmental glomerulonephritis with or without MPGN-like patterns, but with positive IF. Can we say more with this pattern than rule out infections, in which you need to get an infectious disease person to see the patient, or autoimmune disease, that is, perform and follow the various known autoantibodies? If the renal biopsy shows a marked diffuse global and sometimes exudative glomerulonephritis with immune deposits, then, if the patient doesn't have SLE or some autoimmune disease, our first choice is indeed infection, now called infection-associated glomerulonephritis. If the infection is not apparent clinically initially, then an ID specialist should be called. However, in my experience, it is not uncommon to not find evidence of an infection, that is, for example, endocarditis, deep-seated infection, are one of the various autoimmune diseases, and the atypical focal and segmental GN remains anonymous, idiopathic. We just never find out why the patient has this renal disorder. Number four is plasma cell dyscrasia, paraproteinemia. Where are the small clones when the bone marrow fails to identify or misses the tiny clone? What to do? MGUS versus MGRS? What is needed is how to know that circulating restricted light chains are nephrotoxic or tubulotoxic in that patient. If the patient has a positive SPEP-UPEP, elevated free kappa or lambda light chains, or an altered kappa to lambda ratio, and the bone marrow doesn't find the clone or clones, what to do? The renal biopsy, as you know, will be essential in helping distinguish an MGUS from an MGRS, but if you don't find the clone via bone marrow biopsy or flow cytometry, what to do? It should be nice to have an assay that would determine in that patient whether the patient's circulating light chain will damage the kidney or not. Often, there is just an association. Number five, acute tubular injury. Is it primary, that is ischemic versus drug, toxin, or secondary to accompanying glomerular and or vascular disease? Which one is the cause? Acute tubular injury manifested morphologically by thinning or loss of tubular epithelium is a common finding in renal biopsies. It is said that drug toxin-induced ATI often leads to a more severe ATI even true ATN, that is, with true necrosis, and that ischemic dehydration, hypovolemic tubular damage leads to less morphologically severe ATI, with maybe only loss of the brush border or thinning of the tubular epithelium, as noted with the PAS reaction. However, glomerular processes and vascular processes even accompanying interstitial nephritis, can be associated with ATI. Thus, it is often difficult to attribute the ATI to a specific etiology. If the patient is on a chemotherapeutic agent and nothing else, then the ATI might be attributed to that drug. However, the patients are usually on lots of different drugs, and that's the problem.
as you know, you can have a marked rise in serum creatinine, BUN, without major morphologic tubular changes, as for example, as we've seen in patients on synthetic marijuana or other illicit drug uses. Eosinophils can be seen in a number of conditions without drug-related ATI, such as around uromodulin lakes, in diabetes, transplantation, IgG4-related renal disease, ANCA, also making it difficult to determine the cause of the ATI. It is just often difficult to know what the injurious agent is or even whether the tubular damage is reversible. One final issue I'll note is that a major problem for nephrologists that we renal pathologists should know about is that it is not unusual for the new patient of the nephrologist to just walk in off the street with the patient having no knowledge of their previous medical records or any previous laboratory finding which would serve as a baseline for the nephrologist, much less whether there was a previous renal biopsy or not and what it showed. Many patients do not know much about medicine or their past medical histories, and that presents a major issue for the nephrologist who may have to decide to take a renal biopsy of a new patient with CKD in order to see what is happening to the kidneys. Past history is quite important, and the nephrologist just often doesn't have that information. The renal biopsy would hopefully help. Thank you for listening. This podcast and more can be found in the iTunes and Google Play stores. For more information and educational programming like this, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or visit us on the web at arcanalabs.com.